Well, today we're looking at Christ as kind of answering the question in our Christology series as to why did Jesus have to die? That's kind of part of the push of this morning. Why did Jesus have to die or Christ as the sacrificial lamb? You know, in the book of Exodus, we experience this dramatic account of God rescuing the nation of Israel out of slavery so that he can establish them as a new kingdom community. So for almost 400 years, the Israelites, they'd been subjected to the oppression of the Egyptian pharaohs. But as those 400 years-ish drew to a close, they began crying out to God, the God of their ancestor Abraham, crying out to him for deliverance, for mercy, for rescue, and God listens. God delivers, God redeems. He actually rescues the Israelites from Egypt with a series of miracles or a series of plagues, if you will. It sounds weird saying a plague is a miracle, but it's really what it is, right? The plagues are all miraculous. And so Moses and his cousin Aaron, they go face to face with Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And as they're going face to face with Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, God is essentially going face to face with and declaring war so to say, on the Egyptian gods. He's cursing the areas, doing plagues on the areas over which the Egyptian gods are supposed to reign. And so the Nile rivers turn to blood, frogs cover the land, gnats infest man and beast. There's flies that fill the houses of the Egyptians, livestock perishes, people break out in boils, hail falls from the sky, locusts consume all the agriculture. Darkness covers the land, a darkness so thick that you can't see your hand in front of your face. See, but God did all of this, but still Pharaoh would not let the Israelites go. He still wouldn't let them go. See, despite all of the miracles, despite all of the plagues, despite all of the display of power, despite all of the speeches that Moses and Aaron gave Pharaoh would not release the Israelites, and the job was not finished until the Israelites were released, right? That's the job. The job was not to give nine plagues. The job was to see the Israelites set free from the Egyptians. That's precisely what God had sent Moses to do by the power of God. And if Moses were going to stop here, and if he were like, you know what, nine, you know, nine at-bats is a pretty good effort I'm just going to call it a day, then the Israelites would still be stuck in Egypt. There would be no freedom. There would be no exodus. There would be no rescue. So they needed one more miracle. They needed one more plague to come. And that plague was the death of every firstborn son and every firstborn cattle in Egypt. Now, There was one way that the Israelites could save their firstborn sons from this impending death. And according to Exodus chapter 12, what the Israelites had to do is they had to select a young goat without blemish. On the 10th day of the month, they had to keep it until the 14th day of the month in their household. And then on that evening, the family would kill the little lamb and they'd spread its blood on the doorpost and the lintels of their homes. And then they were supposed to roast the lamb, and they were supposed to eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs, and they were supposed to be dressed as if they were about to leave at any moment. 
In other words, they were supposed to do this with the impression and the expectation that God was going to do something big and that when it happened, they had to be willing to leave everything, get up and go and have nothing hold them back. Well, that same night, God sent an angel of death to strike down the firstborn of every household in the land of Egypt. But as the angel of death drew near to the Israelite homes, if they had applied the blood of the lamb on their doorposts, then the angel of death would pass over their household. Not so with the Egyptians. When the Pharaoh woke up the next morning, the entire land was in mourning, crying out and wailing because all of their firstborn sons had been killed, including Pharaoh's own son. And so defeated, after this 10th plague, defeated, Pharaoh finally allows the Israelites to leave the country and in so doing allows them to exit slavery. And they set out on foot towards the promised land. So after that dramatic turn of events, God instructed the Israelites that they were supposed to celebrate this Passover meal annually as a way of remembering what God did, how God used this final sacrifice to free them, to redeem them with blood from slavery and captivity. See, thankfully, God finished the job. Thankfully that God didn't stop after nine plagues, that he didn't say, well, that was a pretty good effort. He didn't grow lazy or apathetic. Nine miracles didn't accomplish the exodus tended. The tenth and final miracle, the slaying of the lamb, the death of the firstborn, this had to happen in order for the deliverance to take place. And the reason I share all this is because, as we talked about before, uh, earlier in the service and in some of the prayers, the, this festival, this Passover festival, this is the backdrop for Palm Sunday and the week that follows. See, as Jesus enters into Jerusalem, he's riding on a colt, and he's there fulfilling Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, which says, Rejoice, O people of Zion, shout in triumph, look, your king is coming to you. He's righteous and victorious, yet he's humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. See, every Jew in town knew what was happening at that moment. As they see Jesus coming in on this donkey, they are familiar with Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. They understand what's going. That's why they're shouting, Lord, save us. And they're putting palm branches in front of the donkey. They know what's going on. They're acknowledging their belief that, Jesus, you are the promised king, the greater son of David, the one we've been waiting for. But that's not why they were there. They weren't in Jerusalem to see Jesus. That was just a coincidence that Jesus was in Jerusalem at the same time. The reason they are all in Jerusalem is because of the Passover. See, they were there for the Passover, and Jesus just happened to arrive as everyone else is arriving, as they're getting ready to go and buy a lamb so that they could kill it a few days later. And so this entrance is beginning the final week of Jesus's life. He enters this week as a king, the Lion of Judah, right? That's the reference we have at the book of, at the end of the book of Genesis, when, when um, what's his name? Joseph, not Joseph, <laughs> Israel is, is praying over all of his sons, and he prays over Judah, right? 
and he prays over Judah, and he talks about how kings are going to come from his line. And so here he begins this week as the line of Judah, but then he's going to be slaughtered as the Lamb of God. And in John chapter 12 through 17, Victor read John 12. In John 12 to 17, it covers these days leading up to the arrest of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane in John 18. And so in John 13, we're at the cusp of the sacrifice. John 13 is the beginning of Jesus' final night. All of his life on earth has led to this evening and the next day. Jesus knew what had to happen. He knew he was going to die. Jesus knew that he was the Lamb of God. He knew that he was the true sacrificial Passover Lamb. Matter of fact, 1 Corinthians 5, 7 even tells us that Christ, our Passover Lamb, has been sacrificed for us. Jesus knew he was going to die, and he was ready. And he, he knew he was ready because he had a dip, a, de- a dip, a deep, <laughs> rich, robust understanding of who he was. He knew why he was there. He knew who his father was. And he knew what beauty would come after the horror. Matter of fact, he referenced this beauty after the horror in the previous chapter in John chapter 12, verse 24, after the triumphant entry, when he says, I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat is planted in the soil and dies, it remains alone, but its death will produce many kernels, a plentiful harvest of new lives. To put it another way, Jesus had this hope, this unbreakable hope that although he would die, he would live. And not only would he live, but through his death, burial, and resurrection, he would bring many people to the Father's table. And this is the same hope that he used to encourage Martha and Mary when Lazarus died. It's the same hope that brought Lazarus back from the grave when he came bouncing out in his mummified form. Jesus said in that passage, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. And so John 13 reads like this. Before the Passover celebration, Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave this world and return to his father. He had loved his disciples during his ministry on earth, and now he loved them to the very end. See, it's from a soul that is brimming with hope that Jesus loved them to the very end. And that phrase, to the very end, it actually looks forward to John chapter 19, verse 30. It's the same root word in the Greek, and that's when Jesus says this. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. It's the same idea. And then he bowed and gave up his spirit. In other words, John 13 says that Jesus loved them until it was finished. Until what was finished? Well, in about 24 hours, Jesus will have finished consuming the cup of God's wrath. He'll have finished becoming the Passover sacrifice. He will have established the bridge between God and sinful man. He will have finished dying as the firstborn son so that the other sons might live. Jesus will have finished accomplishing a greater exodus, not from Egypt, but from slavery to sin. And so Jesus is here and he's in the home stretch. And all of the excellent teaching he's given, right? 
all of the impressive miracles, follow me here, all of the excellent teaching Jesus has given and all of the impressive miracles he's done and all of the loving acts of compassion with lepers and prostitutes and cripples and so on and so on and so on, they've been wonderful. But if Jesus doesn't finish the race here, none of it matters. None of it matters. Jesus has to die. He has to die. The job must be finished or it's not done at all. Just as the exodus wasn't over until the Passover and the firstborn sons were killed, Jesus' job is not over until his Passover sacrifice occurs and the only begotten Son of God is killed. Because without his death, there is no victory over sin because there's no atonement. No payment for sin, no sacrifice. Without his death, there's no salvation because there's no forgiveness. Without his death, there's no resurrection, no new covenant, no glorification. Without his death, it is not finished. He has to love them to the end. John continues, it was time for supper and the devil had already prompted Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over everything and that he had come from God and would return to God. So he got up from the table. Look at that. So he got up. Jesus was able to bow himself down as a servant because he knew he was king. How counter to the world is that? Jesus knew he had all authority So he got up from the table, took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist, poured water into a basin, and then he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel he had around him. And when Jesus came to Simon Peter, Peter said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? So here's Jesus. He's surrounded by his followers, they're his friends. But one of them doesn't believe that Jesus is who he claims to be. This follower wants Jesus to rally the troops. He wants Jesus to incite a rebellion. He believes Jesus to be a political Messiah, not a spiritual Messiah. This Judas wants a lion of Judah. He doesn't want a slaughtered lamb. And so Jesus removes his robe and he prepares to wash their feet. They're resistant, especially Peter. After all, let's be honest, having someone wash your feet is humiliating, especially if they're dirty, stinky, covered in warts and corns from years of walking with unforgiven sandals and doing hard work. There's nothing flattering about turn-of-the-millennium feet. There just isn't, okay? They're gross. The year 33 AD was not a good year for feet. That's what I'm trying to say. And Jesus replied with this to Peter. He says, you don't understand what I'm doing, but someday you will. No, Peter protested, you will never, ever wash my feet. And Jesus replied, unless I wash you, you won't belong to me. Simon Peter exclaimed, then wash my hands and head as well, Lord, not just my feet, And Jesus replied, a person who has bathed all over does not need to wash except for the feet to be entirely clean. And you disciples are clean, not all of you. He's referring to Judas, for Jesus knew who would betray him. 
That is what he meant when he said, not all of you are clean. Okay, so what's going on here? So Jesus explains that unless he washes their feet, he says, you won't belong to me. He says, if I don't wash your feet, you won't belong to me. In other words, you won't be part of my community that he's forming, which is the church. He says that they are already clean because they believe, but now he has to wash their feet. And, you know, if you probably if you have ever read this before, or you've heard sermons on this before, or you've read like a devotional about it before, most Christians will say something like this. You know, you're already clean, but then like in the morning you got to get up and you got to like confess what you did the day before and get like a little fresh up. Right? That's what most people think. And you could preach that even though I don't think that's the actual meaning of the text. That's probably not the author's intention. See, the intent of the author is most likely that although the followers believe in Jesus, most of them, if he doesn't walk forward in this final humiliating servant act of the cross, then they can have no share in his presence. Why? Because the job isn't done. He has to love them to the end. He has to die. You see, and that understanding makes a lot more sense to the way that he responds to Peter because he doesn't say to Peter, look, Peter, we're going to be on bad terms if I don't wash your feet. He says that if he doesn't wash his feet, Peter won't belong to him. He says, you won't belong to me if I don't wash your feet. Now, Jesus isn't going to forbid you from entering into his kingdom if you forgot to confess a sin you committed when you were seven, okay? But if Jesus doesn't die on a cross, and if you don't believe and receive the finished work that he did, then Jesus would say to everybody, you don't belong to me. I have to finish the job. Jesus has to die. If the Passover lamb isn't killed, the Israelites are still stuck in Egypt, if Jesus doesn't die as the ultimate Passover sacrifice, then there's no escaping sin and death. Jesus has to die. So Jesus washes their feet, even Judas, the Son of God, untainted by sin, stoops low to serve sin-saturated men. He picks up their disgusting feet. He scrubs them clean. And in just a few hours, he will be betrayed, he will be abandoned, he will be rejected, he will be denied by these same men that he's loving to the end. He'll be beaten, he'll be whipped, he'll be crucified. Jesus will die to save sinners. He will go all the way to the end. You see, the Bible teaches that human beings are sinful by nature and by choice. And because God is holy, he cannot simply overlook sin. Our sin, which is anything that's not God's perfect design, our sin separates us from God. It fractures our relationship with him the same way it fractures your relationship with your friends or your family when you choose to do wrong towards them. And this describes all of us. It doesn't matter how you were raised, where you were raised. It doesn't matter what your political affiliation is or your orientation or your age or your ethnic background. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the punishment for sin is death, according to Romans 6.23. Now, because God is just, 
Because he's good. People say, well, because God is good, shouldn't he just ignore it? No, because he's good, he's just. And because he's just, he can't simply overlook sin. But he's also loving. And so he wanted to provide a way out. And so God must punish sin in order to maintain justice as a good judge. But God also desires to show mercy to sinners by providing a path for forgiveness. That's why Jesus had to die to create that path. This is why he could be the only one. He could be the only way. Simply stated, only Jesus' death is sufficiently pure and adequate to be the substitutionary atoning sacrifice, the one for the many, that God made him who knew no sin to be sin so that we who know nothing but sin might become the righteousness of Christ. The great exchange that's what happens on, the on that cross. That's what the gospel is. That's why Jesus had to die. So to kind of bring this to close and to summarize what happened on the cross, why Jesus had to die, why it could only be Jesus, why it had to be finished, I just want to read and comment here on Romans chapter 3. This is what Romans 3 reads. It says, For no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. In other words, you can't be made right with God by being a good person or by being religious or by, well, I stopped, you know, I stopped smoking and so now I'm okay. You know, that kind of idea. You can't be good enough. The law simply shows us just how sinful we are. But now God has shown us another way to be made right with him without keeping 100% of the law all of the time from the moment you're conceived, being perfect. In other words, as was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago, for we are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are or what we've done. And so the idea is this. There is a path to get to God. It's called perfection. And no one can do it because I'm an idiot and so are you, okay? And so then what happens is God says, I'm going to make another path. And this other path is Jesus. And that path is by works. And this path is by faith. And with the works path, you'll never be enough. And you're going to try, but you're not going to be enough. But by faith, Jesus was enough and he finished it. And so you get to climb on his back and get a piggyback ride to glory, essentially. For everyone who has sinned, back to Romans, for everyone who has sinned, the piggyback thing's not in Romans. For everyone who has sinned, had, for everyone has sinned, and we all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God, in his grace, freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Jesus when he freed us from the penalty for our sins. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. Think Passover lamb. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. In other words, if you truly trusted in the Passover lamb in Exodus, you would actually put the blood on your doorposts and your lintels, even though it sounded crazy. And if you truly believe in Jesus... 
you will place your trust in him. And you will realize that's your hope. Your hope is not that you get cleaned up. Your hope is that you trust in him. This sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in in past times, for he was looking ahead and including them in what he would do with this present time. In other words, God stored up all of the wrath that mankind deserved in a bucket, and then he poured it out on his son as a substitute. This is called penal substitutionary atonement. And God did this, back to Romans, to demonstrate his righteousness or his justice, for he himself is fair and just, and he makes sinners right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. Can we boast, then, that we have done anything to be accepted by God? No, because our acquittal, our forgiveness, is not based on obeying the law at all. It's based on faith. So we are made right with God through faith and not by obeying the law. That's not by obeying the Old Testament law. It's not by obeying some church's law. It's not by obeying my law. It's not by obeying anything. It's by faith. Now back to me. Look, Jesus had a job to do. Only Jesus could do it. You can't do it. You can't be good enough, religious enough, zealous enough, bright enough. It was Jesus' job to finish it, and he finished it. And that's why I was so struck by this John 13, 1, when he says he loved them to the very end, that Jesus finished it. He says, Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave this world, return to his Father, and he had loved his disciples during his ministry on earth, and now he loved them to the very end. Jesus finished the job. Why did Jesus have to die? Because he had to finish the job. And why did he do that? Because he loved the Father and because he loved you. That's why he died. says it right there. He loved them. This is how God demonstrates his love to the world, that he dies for it while it's his enemy, to make it his bride. Jesus sacrifices because of love. And what he asks us now is that we believe. We believe in his finished work. It is finished. He did it. My job is to believe. The problem is that so many people go their whole lives knowing the stories, hearing the passages, and going through the motions of Christianity without actually finishing what is required of them to believe. So our encouragement to you again this Easter season is to believe in the good news. Believe that Jesus did the work you could not do and then cling to that belief. It's an anchor for your soul. Do that, and the Bible says you are a new creation. That means no more striving, no more guilt, no more shame. In Christ, you're redeemed. In Christ, you're forgiven. In Christ, death has passed over you. He finished the job. Let's pray. Father God, as we draw to a close and as we begin this holy week, as it's called, Lord, and we remember what you've done and we look forward to trying to be more mindful of that this week, God, I ask and pray that you would bring to our hearts consistently the love that you have shown us, the sacrifice that you've given, and the fact that the work is done. There's no more striving. We can be still and know that you are God, that you reign, and we are loved. 
And so I just pray that these things would be clear in our own hearts, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen.